You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I'm here with Sri Sivani Charan, who is from the southern part of India, from a province called Andhra Pradesh, who has a master's degree in management information systems from the University of Memphis. Sri started yoga in India after a three-month course in 2020 and now practices with us on OMSTARS. So Sri, welcome to this show and thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to diving into some very important topics for yoga practitioners all over the world today. Thank you, Kino. <laughs> Thank you for having, for having me here today. It's a pleasure uh, having you here. Yeah. So I remember when we were just speaking before uh, before we got started that you said you actually found, um, you know, uh, me and OMSTARS by searching on YouTube for Mayarasana. So can you do Mayarasana now? How's it going? <laughs> Not actually, uh, because I tried uh, <laughs> tried uh, Mayurasana a couple of times after watching it on YouTube, but then I was like, okay, uh, I think I need more uh, tips or advices from certified trainer, probably online class. So I haven't tried it after that. Good, but you're still practicing. It will come one yeah. day. Pasha took yeah. me like, I don't know, like eight years of practice. So it took some time oh, for me too. So. Yeah. So it's a long yeah. way to go for me now. Yeah. So many people who practice yoga in our contemporary society, um, particularly in Western in the Western world, are, are are sort of in a very privileged position to have the practice. But first of all, I think it's important for everyone to really recognize the origin culture of yoga. So yoga comes from India, and you living in the United States, I interact with many people who might not even know that yoga comes from India. What do you attribute that to? Is it some kind of maybe fear of the origin culture or, or is it just ignorance? What do, you, what do you think is going on when people don't even know that yoga comes from India? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's basically, I mean, uh, I think there are multiple reasons to it. Uh, I think firstly, it would be like discrediting something that has originated in India, <clears throat> which a lot of people think that uh, it's a backward uh, country which has nothing to do with uh, this so-called uh, yoga, which is uh, science related to your uh, body mechanism. So I think that's one of the reasons. And, and the other reason is uh, it's because of the colonial mindset that people uh, don't uh, want to associate things like this with third world countries like India. And moreover, I think it's because of the Hindu phobia that has been spreading uh, in U U.S., especially in the U.S. academia. I think that's one of the major reasons. Would you uh, talk to me a little bit more about the the Hindu phobia that you see in the U.S. academic circles? Like, what is that? How does that take shape, and how can you identify it? And how do you recognize it? Yeah. <clears throat> so first, I came across Hindu phobia uh, like a couple of years ago from uh, this one of the reputed universities from one of the so-called uh, professor there. Uh, she was actually uh, glorifying one of uh, India's most oppressors called Aurangzeb. She has written few books on that glorifying him. Whereas on the other hand, uh, a famous U.S. historian, Will Durant, visited India back in 
uh, 1900s. He was there in India and he uh, had uh, this research. He was, I mean, he went to different places and then he he clearly mentioned that <clears throat> the history of Aurangzeb was one of the bloodiest parts, not just in the Indian history, but also in the world history. Whereas this woman, she started glorifying <clears throat> Aurangzeb just because he had some Sanskrit scholars in his court. And also she uh, started spitting venom against all the Hindu scriptures and the mis started mistranslating all the Hindu scriptures. Say, for example, uh, Lord Ram, uh, she uh, tweeted saying that Lord Ram was a misogynist pig and something like those, using the mistranslated uh, Sanskrit verses. That's problematic so, to have a mistranslation be the definition, you know, and, and language is very, very particular. You know, there are some things, exactly. especially when we have two things that are at, at play here. First, it's just the pure language translation, but then we're also dealing with an ancient language, you know, and exactly. when, when we try to make a translation, there's a particular attitude of study um, that I think is very much missing in the Western academic world. And it's something I had to learn when I, you know, when I practiced yoga in India with my teachers, um, the questions from Westerners would very much be what we call deconstructivist or challenging. You know, mm -hmm. uh, this uh, this seems to contradict this and this doesn't go along with this. And here's the problem here and here's the problem there. And I figured out, you know, sort of this like challenge, whereas the the Indian students would approach the scriptures in a different way, almost with this kind of um, humility that seemed to say, let me study this first and exactly. let me listen to what my teacher says before I go in and deconstruct and challenge. And, 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 and I felt this was this different kind of paradigm. So do you kind of do you see that at play in, in the Western academic approach to how, you know, we're, we're interacting with the sacred knowledge of India? Yeah, uh, I think as uh, you clearly mentioned that it's because of the language translation. And th that's completely I mean, that's 100 percent correct, because uh, Sanskrit is the ancient language. And uh, there are several uh, uh, sentences, I mean, several words in Sanskrit which do not have proper meaning in English. And I think these mistranslations come especially uh, comes into picture when uh, people try to find out uh, a word in English which do not exist. Yeah, definitely. So, we have this all in yoga, you know, the word samadhi. You know, how do we translate that? It's this. Uh, exactly. You can't, you know. Exactly. And uh, one other thing is there are I mean, uh, several meanings for a specific word in uh, Sanskrit. Say, for example, you just mentioned samadhi. You can interpret in uh, several ways. Samadhi is like uh, we call uh, tomb, something like that. And the other one is samadhi stiti. So you can interpret in different ways, right? And that's where uh, these uh, lot of misinterpretations come from. Especially, uh, they take uh, only half versions of what was actually present in Bhagavad Gita. Say, for example, in Gita, it says that Chaturvannam Maya Srishtam. And they just take that one sentence and say that, see, uh, uh, it was Krishna who created these Varnas and started discriminating. And then they don't tell you the second part of it. Say, for example, Chaturvannam Maya Srishtam, uh, Guna Karma Vibhaga Saha, which means that it is based on the qualities and the work you do. And after that, it also says that uh, even uh, even I am the creator, think that I am not the creator, which means that uh, it is formed as a process of evolution. So if, even if this Varna system doesn't actually exist, 
it is present it is innate to the nature because as i mentioned earlier we have intellectual class we have business class we have working class and then we have soldiers who is protecting the country so that's how these people uh, view it and also uh, they try to view sanatan dharma or hinduism from the lens of judeo abrahamic faiths this can be highly problematic before we go there for everyone who's listening i want to make sure that everyone knows what we're talking about so let's give people a little bit of a a big broad overview of the the you know the varna system or what is often referred to in english as the caste system so there seems to be a a big question of where did it come from and is it discriminatory and you know how do we solve that and this is a a question that is is a topic that's existing within um you know different circles particularly in western world and there's a critical gaze that's being placed on some of these scriptures as you mentioned from this sort of western paradigm but for people who don't know the caste system the varna system sort of could you give a little bit of background information on this just so people can understand sort of you know what we're discussing yeah sure so uh, actually caste system and varna system are entirely different and uh, caste system was never mentioned in any of the hindu scriptures not in the puranas not in the vedas nowhere caste system was actually introduced uh, during the uh, british rule in india probably in the 18th century uh, i mean you can uh, anyone can simply google it you will find that lord resley uh, who was a british uh, officer he was the one who introduced this caste system this rigid caste system in india just to uh, for their senses and he wanted to uh, put forward uh, this theory of evolution uh, to the race as well so that's when this uh, caste system actually originated and it uh, caste is basically a, a spanish portuguese word it has nothing to do with uh, indian scriptures or sanatan dharma so uh, the modern form of this caste system that we have been practicing is definitely that which was started by british and i totally agree that we still have it and I mean, most of the people are currently changing and then working towards ending this caste system so uh, one more thing that uh, people say that's that that's no- that's a very important thing to note because you know the recognition of hey this system that was created uh, as a as a remnant of the you know colonial empire um you know uh, you're essentially agreeing look this is this is not good let's uh, exactly. let's challenge this which yeah. is something that i think gets missed a lot you know people end up speaking this way and what what we're here to talk about is not is not to say hey the, we're not defending the caste system and that's super important for people to understand right. you're not there yeah. saying hey the caste system is awesome let's keep it and put it on for another 2000 years you're yep. you're actually saying look this is nothing to do with the core of sanatana dharma so in fact sanatana dharma would challenge the caste system as it's currently at place so it's really important for people to hear and to be able to distinguish that and say you know that that this that this caste system as it's perpetuated uh today and exists today um and the remnants of it from the colonial empire are you know are are not in sync with that deeper spiritual teaching exactly uh, so one other thing that i would like to bring up is uh, so as i mentioned that caste system is not innate to hinduism however we have this varna system and one other thing that uh, i heard a lot of people arguing that uh, no caste system was long present even before uh, british came to india uh, that was totally false because india has this varna system and jati jati is nothing but the occupation you take say for example what's your occupation you are a yoga teacher 
So what's my occupation? I'm software developer. So that is basically the jati that we used to refer. Because what do you uh, refer to in the olden times? That, that jati is basically the community that you're working on, the occupation that you've been working on. Yeah, and the, you know, the Yoga Sutras, they mentioned this about uh, the vow of Ahimsa. It says that, you know, not your jati, your, you know, your occupation, your place in society doesn't excuse you from following Ahimsa. So it's mentioned, but not as this kind of, you know, just in that, just in that statement of, hey, no matter where you fall in society, what your jati is, you have to, if you're going to be a yogi, you still have to follow these vows. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, there are these things that are being excluded, especially in the West and especially by the uh, so-called leftist propagandists. And uh, I mean, you can say that they have certain agenda to defame Hinduism or to propagate, uh, say, call their religion or something. Yeah. And uh, coming back to this uh, Varna system, I can quote uh, several examples from the scriptures and also the events that happened uh, probably in the modern history. And also there are... Uh, certain uh, situations where our rishis have uh, like Ramanujacharya, they, I mean, uh, they were the pioneers. I don't exactly remember the century, but I, I'll note it down and I'll tell you later. Uh, they were pioneers who were actually saying that uh, there's no discrimination at all. Everyone is equal. There are various situations and even there are stories where the deity himself has reformed. So, uh, I can quote uh, stories uh, which happened in Ranganadam in Tamil Nadu and instances like those. Yeah, I mean, I can uh, take a note of it later and then quote definitely. it exactly. Yeah, yes, because definitely. right now I don't, ex- I can't recollect because I haven't taken no, a note. No, we of can it. provide the resources for people. Yeah. This is wonderful. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, I think that it's also important to talk about. Um, particularly people who live in the Western world that have a potentially critical gaze of the caste system um, or even Varana. So to have the idea of, oh, when we're going to talk about places and places are defined in the Western world, there's this idea of the myth of the individual, of you're born and you can achieve whatever, you know, it's just your own, it's just your own willpower that gets you to achieve. And this is very much a Western concept of this individual out there on their own, striving to, you know, conquer the world and whatnot. So um, when when that gaze is then placed on the concept of, of, of caste, it's almost with the illusion that there are no castes within the Western world. And maybe that's not true. What do you think about that? Uh, I think... Uh, I, uh... Uh, there, there's no caste system. However, there, I mean, there are varnas. Mm-hmm. Because like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, even any country has this four uh, class of people, say intellectuals, followed by uh, soldiers or the people who protect the country, followed by the businessmen who runs the country. I mean, not who runs, who keeps the economy going. Running. Yeah. Running, but maybe exactly. sometimes runs the country too. Maybe that's a yeah. problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then followed by service workers. Say, for example, uh, we have this company. Uh, uh, so I work for a hospital and we have these intellectuals or uh, research people who work on uh, creating new kinds of treatments. Mm-hmm. We, we can probably say them as Brahmins mm-hmm. because they are the intellectuals. They are mostly invested. And then me, people like me, uh, we consider ourselves as Sudras because we are uh, service workers. Mm-hmm. Because we, we, I mean, we do all the work that uh, on, on the ground level. Makes sense. Exactly. So uh, similarly, as I mentioned uh, earlier, that uh, these 
Kshetriyas are the people who protect the country, like kings, soldiers, everyone. Followed by the Vaishya class. I mean, Vaishya Varna. Mm-hmm. That's how. So yeah. in the in the hospital, well, maybe the doctors have to be the soldiers because they're protecting everyone. They're yeah. on the they're the first line of defense. You know, they're doing exactly. the, the important work. But you can see yeah. that even to for the Western mind to understand, you know, the analogy of okay, in this say, take a hospital. This is something that many you know Western people are familiar with. There are doctors. There are people that work IT uh, that work in the technology. There's people that are researching. There's um, people that are doing administrative work. There are also janitors who keep the place clean and, you know, there are parking attendants. And so there are people that have different stations. And truthfully, in the Western world, it would be difficult for someone that's working um, in administration to, uh, you know, become a neurosurgeon. It would be difficult to change stations. So that myth of upward mobility is available to few who have the privilege of education or economics or something like this. But it is actually quite hard, even in Western civilizations that seem to pride themselves on this, you know, individual myth, um, you know, that, that, that it is actually hard to change out of the station that you were born in. Wow. And this is a similar concept. Um, so I think it's useful for, you know, the Western mindset to realize, oh, wait a minute, before we cast our gaze critically to another country, we address, we have to address the privilege that exists entrenched within the discriminatory patterns of our own country. And maybe those stations aren't clearly spoken about. So it requires us to go to go to dive in and deconstruct that. And the same methodology might not apply if we, again, try to solve the problems of another culture when we haven't solved our own problems first. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, it's uh, it's not good to judge other cultures based on the lens that we currently have based on our culture. Uh, it depends on their epistemology, their cultures and the practice that have been following for thousands of years. So uh, based on that, you can't actually judge them based on your uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. And one more thing I would like to bring up is uh, it was uh, one system was never rigid in ancient uh, India or in uh, Sanatana Dharma because most of our rishis, uh, renowned rishis like uh, Valmiki, uh, Vyasa, they come from uh, the so-called tribals. Uh, they are considered as Brahmins because uh, they had reached that level of intellect. So, bra- uh, so actually Brahmins or Brahminism, it's not Brahminism, it's kind of derogatory word nowadays. So it's like Brahmins are the ones who have something called Atmagnana. I can't translate it. Yeah, in English. This is, this is an interesting one, though. Too, we, we have this concept in yoga, so so let's try to translate it. We try. If we had to try, the so the atma. Some people know this word from from yoga. So we have this this like mm-hmm. essential essential nature, the soul, the spirit. We have to use many words to point at this concept, and then yana, exactly. the wisdom, the wisdom that comes from direct experience. So, yeah, so I, exactly. I think I think that this is wonderful. So, oh, sorry, I interrupted you though, to define that. So please continue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, these people, I mean, say Valmiki or uh, Vyasa, they they were not born into Brahmin class. However, because of the intellect that they have attained, or due to their Atmagnana, they were uh, they became Brahmins. I mean, it was never like they mentioned that they are Brahmins, but based on the knowledge they attained they were considered as Brahmins. This is how the Varna system worked. And similarly, we had several other poets like Kalidasa, who was born uh, in a similar uh, background. He became one of the most uh, famous Indian poets. 
and he was considered as the Shakespeare of Indian uh, literature. Yeah, there's a road so, in Mysore named after you know Kalidasa. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kalidasa. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There are several such uh, poets or scholars, or let's say, are famous. I mean, renowned rishis who came from the so-called current rigid caste system. I mean, considered as lower caste in the current uh, rigid caste system. It was never uh, that rigid back in the old days. So is there is there a way that you could explain a little bit more about the the the, the sanatana dharma and the difference between the sanatana dharma and how people understand um, Indian mm-hmm. philosophy today, where they lump in everything all together and say, oh well, you know, India has this caste system, and you know, and so what is and and then people talk about well, India is actually Brahmanism now, and and so mm-hmm. what is what is sanatana dharma and how is it mm-hmm. divergent from from these kind of lumping together of, 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 of all of these big, broad concepts. Mm-hmm. So uh, Sanatana Dharma is, I mean, current day Hinduism. We don't have this concept of Hinduism uh, until this uh, British invasion. Because uh, before that, we, uh, we, it's called as Sanatana Dharma. Dharma, it doesn't have any specific definition in, in English. That, that's the reason it started, I mean, uh, it was called as a religion everywhere now so sanatana is nothing but uh, in sanskrit it's called as something that exists for eternity from long back no one knows when it was born when it's going to end and uh, dharma is basically set of it's hard to explain uh, it's a set of cultures practices everything it it has the character of assimilating all the cultures in itself and it doesn't say that we have a specific book and you have to definitely follow this it's nothing like that and there's no specific God. And uh, if you go to the uh, core of what Sanatana Dharma is, it says that you are the God and God is in it. It's, uh, it's like, I can explain you more. I mean, I can't actually get it at this point. I do have my notes, but yeah. Uh, I can explain you the core of what Sanatana Dharma actually is, the, what it meant. I can t- tell it to you later. I mean, yeah, in actual I, podcast because I'm not actually prepared for all this because I'm taking. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's so. I think it's very brave of you to go into, you know, and courageous to go into these very deep concepts. As you mentioned, you know, your degree is in is in, in management systems, but this is your culture and bringing and talking about this is is to is to give people a window into the like this this ancient cultural history that yoga comes from. And to embrace the Sanatana Dharma is to embrace the, the real true origin culture of yoga. So this goes beyond the British occupation. This goes, you know, beyond, um, you know, the, the, the these, these kind of uh, temporary sort of obstacles that arise of discrimination here and there to this overarching concept, which is that there's a way to know this sacred knowledge of the divine or, or God within you. And here are the tools. You know, when you when you mentioned before the this this definition of of, of the Brahmins, we uh, you know in my tradition, my my yoga teacher uh, Patavi Joyce, he would say this one mantra after he did the opening prayer with us that begins with um, you know um, Namo Brahma Divya Brahma Vidya Sampradaya Karatrubhyo Namaste to the keepers of the way of the knowledge of how to know that God within you. So it's this idea of if anyone, those individuals who, who have the knowledge, not the book knowledge, not, 
you know, the writing, but exactly. as you mentioned, the, the Atmanyana, this, this direct experience, that those are the ones that we, that, that we give pranam to. Those are the ones that we have to thank. We think about this. This is like, okay, we can be critical of this one thing in society here or there, but we can't discard thousands of generations of these individuals who've given their life to keep this sacred knowledge alive, you know? Exactly. And that, that, I think, is the core of really what's very, very important. Now, something you mentioned before was that um, it gets difficult when people who operate within the Judeo-Christian universe try to read into the Sanatana Dharma. So would you talk a little bit about what are the obstacles that you see from this Judeo-Christian paradigm when that gets sort of reflected back onto Indian culture? Yeah. So uh, have you seen any of the Indologists or especially from the... Uh, Sanatana Dharma, I mean, people who are following Sanatana Dharma, taking their, uh, I mean, working in the academia against Judeo-Abrahamic faiths, uh, you can't see them. But whereas, on the other hand, you see a lot of people uh, who who are following Abrahamic faiths uh, have their a certain agenda of propagating against Sanatana Dharma. So, uh, <laughs> It, when, uh, when it, when it, what's an example of that? Would that be sort of when people get afraid that, you know, just because you do yoga, you're going to be converted and then the like demons are going to come over you. I mean, there's, there's, this actually goes on. And I mean, <laughs> exactly. The, yeah. The, the, someone wrote me a message once and said, you're possessed by a demon because you do yoga. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, we need to calm down. You know? Exactly. So I wrote back and said, why would you think that? Oh, because my church told me so. And I thought, Stop going to that church immediately. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Even uh, I came across one uh, certain situation. I mean, uh, I saw it on YouTube that one of the pastors in Alabama, you know, I mean, he, he was uh, actually propagating the same thing that uh, people who does yoga will definitely be possessed by some demons or evil. I was like, why? <laughs> I think it's not any, uh, it's related to, I don't think it's related to God, but it's like, the business of these people, I think they are afraid that uh, they are going to lose people out of their fold. And I think that's the main reason. That's very, very generous. You know, I mean, I think, uh, and maybe also very real, you know, people think, oh, you know, this is, I'm going to lose my, my, you know, I'm going to lose my income. I think, exactly. there's also, I think there's more that I think that, you know, as you mentioned that there's, um, there is this kind of uh, latent sort of uh, discriminatory gaze that, um, you know, uh, the dominant culture in the United States seems to take to philosophies and practices that come from other countries. And then there's a fear, you know, there's a fear. There's sometimes a potentially even a racist fear, a xenophobic fear. Yeah. And then suddenly you can, you can just wave this mantle of, don't do this or against your religion. And then suddenly, you know, uh, you can claim your people back and then there's this hard division. And, you know, I, I've worked with actually many students who were, who, who were you know, many white students who were raised in conservative places like Alabama and or Christian conservative places like Alabama. And their, you know, their pastors or their priests said, you can't practice yoga or you'll be under demonic possession or, you know, this sort of thing. And they, yeah. they said they loved the practice. So then they had to hide it from their family. And I think this really, this epitomizes sort of Hindu phobia, you know, like exactly. absolute terror. And it goes beyond, I think, just fear of the religion, because it's also, you know, again, it's racist and xenophobic fear. It's, uh, you know, no, and then nobody's afraid of Pilates. It's not like, 
Exactly. Know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's it's so tragic so that it's humorous like we're laughing but on one level it's no laughing matter as well you know it's really something that needs to be questioned in if the judeo-christian universe is a, a philosophy of forgiveness and tolerance and you know all are welcome uh, exactly. then how does that fit into you can't do this ancient you know practice that is essentially help you to find god within you well, exactly yeah <laughs> you know how does that how does that make sense you know yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's, <laughs> I can't exactly comment on that because uh, I think it's because of the circumstances they were brought up in, or it's because they don't exactly understand the core of uh, core or essence of Sanatana Dharma, uh, because it, it's not like you can just get it just by reading some form of book without any proper knowledge on the exact language that is being used there. Even, uh, even even in India, that's happening, especially because of the Marxist ideologies, because they don't want to uh, read everything and they want to read these mistranslated texts. So it's being propagated uh, in the academia as well. Say, for example, not, uh, in California curriculum, I, I don't know which class has this, probably fifth standard or sixth standard. Even they have a chapter dedicated to Hinduism, mostly on the caste system, that is, which was not innate to Hinduism. And you know what? Nothing was mentioned about yoga. Nothing was mentioned about this Atmagnana or uh, believing uh, the God in yourself. And nothing was mentioned about the Rishkas. Rishkas are the Rishis who were women. Nothing was mentioned about them. Everything was mentioned regarding the caste system and against it. Uh, uh, I can share a link of the video that uh, people, I mean, that kids of Indian origin, they were... Uh, actually having this conversation in a courtroom with the judge or with the, with the so-called uh, policy makers uh, saying that these uh, this is a discrimination we have been facing in the American academia. And so uh, th that's where this Hindu-phobia is starting mm -hmm. in the U.S. Not just in higher universities. It starts even in the elementary schools wow. or middle school. Wow. I mean, so, it's like a good intent that didn't go go right, right? So someone said, we have to put a chapter about India in. And then they, the chapter that they chose was, was you know, not was not this holistic and, and true presentation of that sacred knowledge. It exactly, was which this, was not even innate to Sanatana Dharma. So mm -hmm. That's what, I mean, I always wonder why it was not even innate to uh, the actual culture. And whereas they wanted to put it in the textbooks and wanted uh, people to discriminate these kids because I, I've even read some stories like recently that uh, there were many kids who uh, after coming home they started crying that I don't want to associate with Sanatana Dharma because uh, I'm being bullied at school because oh. uh, you're associated with these cats and these cats yeah so yeah there are lots it's of, very uh, complex no it's very very complex yeah yeah it's not at all a small issue that's the reason I uh, actually mm -hmm. spoke against uh, uh, the women who was uh, present in that uh, conference. Do you remember a, that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a complex issue. So I'm so glad yeah, and yeah. I thank you for taking the time to dive in. I mean, just to think about the idea that, say, you have a family that has brought their children over to the United States to, you know, try to achieve and send the children to school. And then there's this chapter that then creates a prejudice and suddenly you know, the, the, that the children are experiencing discrimination in the United States based on this presentation of their own culture, which is not actually the complete presentation. 
So it's just it's very complex. It's one of these mind boggling things that really makes it difficult. And this is, yeah. I think, you know, um, very useful for yoga practitioners to hear. You know, the yoga practitioners of, in the Western world, they may only have a, a casual interaction. They come, they take a class, they go home, they get great benefit. But after some years, it's very important for yoga practitioners to really reflect, especially yoga teachers. If there are, you know, yoga teachers out there who haven't sort of taken a deep dive into the philosophy. So I have another, I've, I have maybe, maybe one last question for you, which is, which maybe opens up another box for us to talk about. And that's okay too, is there are one more important thing I would like to uh, mention. Okay. Uh, so uh, there are great American thinkers like Henry David Thoreau, mm-hmm. who were actually influenced by these, uh, by our Vedas and Upanishads. And they haven't found any fault with it. But the modern day uh, so-called people who were um, propagating this Hindu phobia in uh, academia actually found fault with them. That's a classic example of what you could call cultural appropriation. If these principles that are from this origin culture, when they're presented, then it's used as a, discri- as a form of discrimination. But when someone, say a white man, one of, particularly in the time of Henry David Thoreau, was one of the most privileged people in society, they espouse those same principles and then they're elevated and given credit for that. And this is kind of that exa- classic example of cultural appropriation. Again, nothing wrong with Henry David Thoreau. Like, wonderful that he was able to integrate that. That's great. I, that we're not we're not trying to cancel him or anything like that. We're just saying that, like, it's it's not as it's 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 useful to be sensitive and aware when there's this information coming, and when we're quick to judge and we're quick to say, you know, this is bad and this is good. Then it's probably useful to to, to be a little bit more subtle and, and dive in and 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 also look look a little bit deeper. You know, so Westerners practicing yoga, there are in the United States, there are so many people who are not of Indian origin practicing yoga. Maybe I've never been to, never will go to India. We'll never have an Indian teacher. They take a teacher training. Now they're teaching yoga. What do you think is the best path for people in this situation? Say yoga teachers, how, like, how can they move away from uh, say cultural appropriation into a cultural immersion. Like, how can they respect this the Sanatana Dharma when they're teaching yoga um, and say that it's it's not their culture, but they love it enough to want to be a yoga teacher? Yeah. So uh, firstly, I would say them to not read uh, the so-called mistranslated books uh, in case if they wanted to uh, know the essence of yoga or other dharmic philosophies. Uh, I would suggest them to go for a guru to find a guru or then learn from them instead of uh, reading these fabricated versions, which is certain agenda driven. And then uh, rather than uh, taking some classes in some academia, it's better to go for a guru and feel it instead of just reading from a scripture, like reading a newspaper every day in the morning. So uh, yeah, instead of propagating all the uh, all that is not associated to uh, actual Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma, it's better to go in that direction of finding a proper guru or proper yoga teacher who is culturally rooted to what yoga is or what Sanatana Dharma represents, rather than someone who doesn't have any idea or who has a distorted view of Sanatana Dharma that may end up in chaos, like spreading the same Hindu phobia. Mm-hmm. And one other thing that I would like to uh, ask everyone is to uh, associate it with uh, Sanatana Dharma and not at all dissociate with it because 
I've even read articles where some people, uh, especially uh, the women that was uh, we had in that uh, conference, was mentioning that yoga was not at all related to uh, Sanatana Dharma. No other philosophies were related to Sanatana Dharma. It was some Aryan invasion or something like that. Do not believe them at all. And I wanted you not just uh, listen from someone else as well, but you have to do some deep research in case if you want to actually find out what it is. Do you get me? So Absolutely. This is the traditional mode of studying. So, I mean, what you're recommending is the traditional course of study. You know, don't just read it in a book. Find someone who has the direct experience. Find your guru. Find a master of, of, of the, of the philosophy. All of these, yeah. Instead mm-hmm. of secondary propositions, I would highly recommend you to uh, read it yourself. Not just read it yourself, but find a guru and then get all this knowledge from them instead of having... Uh, taking the secondary propositions and believing whatever you hear from these propagandists. Oh, absolutely. This is this is the traditional mode of study. And I, 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 I absolutely recommend that as well. There's nothing, there's nothing that can take the place of, of really devoting yourself to that course of study. And that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that, you know, um, in the Western world, we do all of this self-study. We're, we're self-taught. We're, you know, we're, we're DIY. We do it ourselves. We're, we pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. And this is kind of the opposite of the stories of the great yogis of the past is that they found their teacher and they dedicated themselves to their teacher for some time. And then there was a transmission of knowledge, something that's that's beyond words to describe. And, and then from that basis, then they began to teach themselves or somehow it happened that they had this knowledge and then they shared that. So I, I really love that we just reinforce that. And I think that as the model um, for yoga teachers it's very important to go back to that, you know, just you did a 200 hour training and you, you know, heard about one thing for one day. It's not enough. If this is your life, you have to, you have to have more than a teacher. Maybe you can have many, many teachers and many kind of a philosophy teacher. You can have a asana teacher, but get the teacher and steep in the knowledge. Exactly. Yeah. Even in Upanishads, I mean, what, you know, what uh, these Upanishads mean, it's like Upanishads is sitting nearby a guru and mm-hmm. connecting it with him. I mean, connecting mm-hmm. with him emotionally, mentally, and, and that's how uh, our, uh, I mean, uh, mode of, uh, what do you say, intellectual transmission was like, uh, ours is an oral tradition where this knowledge is being transmitted from one generation to other generation through uh, I mean, oral transmission, from especially mm-hmm. from a guru, rather than uh, sitting at home and uh, reading books as a time, as a, as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, oh, definitely. And of course the study is there, but it's that, it's that in-person experience, as you said, the, the oral tradition, hearing the words, being in the presence, and then also, you know, the devotion it takes to actually, you know, recite these, right, recite the scriptures and go through them. You know, my, my yoga teacher, first thing that I wanted to do, because I came from an intellectual background, you know, and I went to India and I immediately said to my teacher, I want to study the yoga sutras, which translation should I read? And I want to read this. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you take chanting class. <laughs> I thought, chanting class, I don't want to, I want to read and, you know, I dissect these verse. When you can chant all of the sutras, then we can talk about them. Okay. So it's a different... To, uh, to understand them, you have to get a decent level of proficiency in Sanskrit. Exactly. Beginner, because you have to uh, understand 
because there are several meanings associated with the single word as i mentioned earlier mm-hmm. and even uh, a little bit of uh, translation i mean mistranslation could end in chaos absolutely so yeah yeah in case if someone wants to need all the scriptures either go to a guru or uh, if you want to learn by yourself which i highly discourage <laughs> you have to uh, at least have a, a very high knowledge of sanskrit and then i mean then only you'll be able to actually get the essence of what it is i mean what this puranas are or what this yoga sutras are what hmm. I love leaving people with this um with this sort of quest to to study more. So I think that's a good way to 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 leave everyone and I'll just I'll thank you so much Shri for coming on and sharing so openly. It's been a pleasure for me to share this time with you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey there. It's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel Omstars, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.